welcome to Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. We use console questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah, your host and a MedPeds ID fellow. Here on Febrile, we use patient cases and chat with ID discussants to learn more about high-yield ID topics. We have another Febrile series. This time, it is entitled High School, which is meant to be spelled H. AI. So the next four topics will be covered in a bundle of episodes about healthcare associated infections. So we're talking CLABSI, CAUTI, SSI, and VAP. So these episodes are going to come out every Monday for the next four weeks. All four episodes are actually featuring friends from Michigan. The first three will be a team from Beaumont Health, and then our last episode will be from the University of Michigan. So I will quickly introduce you to our duo for the first three episodes. Our co-host is Dr. Jeremy Steinbrook, who is currently an ID fellow at Beaumont Royal Oak. He is joined by Dr. Nicholas Gilpin, who is an ID physician also with Beaumont Health in Southeast Michigan, where he serves as the Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Epidemiology for Beaumont Royal Oak and the Medical Director of Infection Prevention for the Beaumont Health System. All right, let's jump in. Welcome to the show, guys. Hi, good to be here. Hi, thank you for having us. So glad you guys are here. So we're going to have several episodes in a row, but we still wanted to start off with our usual question of asking you, Nick, as our guest, if you would be willing to share a little piece of culture or something that you enjoyed recently. <laughs> well, we're still very much in a in a COVID world, right? <laughs> um, but I was, uh, I was very fortunate to get to go to um, uh, a concert recently. And, uh, and I haven't done that in a while since the whole COVID experience. So that was pretty cool to do that again and see some live music. Yeah. Well, what was the performer? I saw a band called Fontaine's DC, who are a indie uh, rock band, if you will. Um, and they're from Ireland and they played at one of our small music venues in downtown Detroit. It was really cool. That sounds fun. Um, all right. Well, I am going to throw it over to Jeremy to get us started with our console question for this episode. Yes, thank you. So our first console question is a patient has an elevated leukocytosis and a fever in the ICU, concern for sepsis, and the ICU is asking for antibiotic approval. So about the patient, the patient is a 38-year-old female, currently intubated, sedated on paralytics for ARDS, secondary to COVID pneumonia. This is her ICU day five, uh, was not on any antibiotics at the time of the fever of 38.4, and leukocytosis of 30K. Um, what would be your first approach to this patient? So this is a classic, right? I think we've all seen um, a version or a variation on this theme. Um, and I think first things first, we need to try to get a little bit more additional clinical information, some history, a proper physical exam, some more context, right? Um, and the differential diagnosis in a situation like this can be incredibly daunting, right? So we need to try to approach this as systematically as possible. Think about potential sources, right? You have an ICU patient that's on a ventilator. So if we're thinking about lines, wounds, catheters, these are all entry points into the body. These are all potential sources. Um, think about the possibility of a secondary bacterial pneumonia in an intubated patient, right? Um, if this patient is immunocompromised, we might need to think about um, unusual pathogens that may or may not otherwise, you know, ordinarily suspect things like pneumocystis, for example. 
And remember that about half of the fevers in the ICU are the consequence of some infectious process, right? But of course, we also have to consider that other huge bucket, which is the non-infectious causes of fever, of which there are many, right? We have drug fever, we have acute thrombosis, we have transfusion reactions, and so on. As for the leukocytosis, likewise, I think we need to approach that systematically as well. Remember that the sensitivity and specificity uh, of an elevated WBC is not anywhere close to 100%, right? It's probably more like 60 or 70% when we're thinking about infection. So go back to basics, review the smear. Are there any abnormal cells present? You know, look at the differential. Is there a preponderance of one type of cell line or another, such as lymphocytes, right, which might signal a viral process, or eosinophils, which might signal an allergy or, or some other uh, type of process? Or are there a lot of immature cells, right? Could this be a left shift? And this might help point you in the right direction. In the example that you provided in the case of your intubated female um, with ARDS and COVID pneumonia, um, we can probably assume that this patient, because this patient has COVID, is probably on glucocorticoids, right? So that's often a cause of significant leukocytosis, usually neutrophil predominant. Um, and so the history, again, often gives it away in these cases. Uh, another common cause of leukocytosis that we have to talk about is, is stress, right? And I'm not necessarily just talking about emotional stress, though that is important. We're also talking about trauma, surgery. Leukocytosis in these situations is usually due to demargination of neutrophils, and it often happens pretty quickly. And again, the history should give it away to some extent. Yes, a little about her history. She's been intubated for five days, was intubated for acute hypoxic respiratory failure secondary to COVID. Yes, she was started on dexamethasone in this case. Blood pressure dropped a little bit when they intubated her, so they did put a central line in the right IJ and then a right radial line to monitor blood pressures. Um, but the ICU team had a question if should they draw blood cultures and... Uh, they wanted to know where should they draw them. Okay. Yeah. You know, again, this is the sort of blocking and tackling that those of us in infectious disease and critical care medicine, we do this all day, every day, right? So assuming the source is still not readily apparent at this point, then I think cultures are quite reasonable, right? And regarding how to or where we should obtain those cultures from, whether we should get them from a line or from a venipuncture, you've sort of wandered into a hotly contested area of medicine, of infectious disease and critical care medicine. In 2009, which is now, you know, it's dating me a little bit, dating the guidelines a little bit, there were the IDSA published their guidelines for diagnosis and management of intravascular catheter infections. And in that document, the recommendation was to diagnose a line infection. You preferentially will do that um, through two mechanisms, either the, the differential time to positivity, which just to summarize that for the listener is we draw cultures from the line and we draw culture from the vein. And if the culture from the catheter is positive earlier by a magnitude of about 120 minutes or more, if it's positive before the venipuncture, that strongly suggests that the catheter may be the source. 
Similarly, you can do what are called quantitative blood cultures, which is where the lab will actually quantify how much bacteria is growing on a plate. And if you have more than three times as many colonies from the line culture as from the venipuncture, again, that can strongly suggest that you may be dealing with a line as a source. Additionally, you could take the catheter out if you suspect it's the source and you could culture the catheter tip. And if you grow the same thing from the blood that you grow from the catheter tip, again, you could sort of reverse engineer that you may be dealing with a, a line as a source, albeit this is a retrospective process. The controversial bit here is that not all of your labs have the ability to do differential time to positivity or quantitative blood cultures. Many do and many don't. Um, so you need to you know, be aware of what your lab has and what your lab can do um, because it will make a difference. If your lab is not able to do differential time to positivity or is not able to do quantitative blood cultures, then I would argue that we probably should not be drawing from lines because every time you're accessing that line to draw, you're introducing the possibility of contamination or, or you're increasing the chance that the line could become colonized and could subsequently become infected. Um, moreover, there is some emerging evidence that differential time to positivity and quantitative blood cultures may not be as good as we once thought it was for certain organisms, such as Staph aureus. And I would argue that if your patient has Staph aureus in their blood, uh, regardless of what the source is, we should be thinking about catheters and trying to get them out as soon as possible, because if they're not the primary source, they could certainly become a secondary source. Um, and lastly, I would argue that drawing from the line often doesn't change the clinical management of the patient, right? If you perform two venipunctures and they both, like I, the example I just gave, if they both grow staph, um, then again, you're going to probably take that line out anyway. If it grows E. coli, right? And, you know, you have some other source that you're considering like urine or like an abdominal source, then again, it's probably not going to change your management having drawn those from the vein versus drawing them from the line. So with our case, the team did draw from the central line and one venous. The culture from the central line came back as Steph Epi. Um, so would this now be classified as eclapsy. So this is probably catheter colonization, right? You, you drew a culture from a line and it grew coagulase negative staph and you drew a culture from a venipuncture and it didn't grow anything. Um, so that's probably not significant. Now that, that could indicate colonization and colonization often eventually leads to infection. So I think we need to keep that in the back of our mind that we may need to start thinking about getting that line out and not leaving it in for too long. Don't give it an opportunity to become infected. Um, unfortunately, from a surveillance perspective, um, this may be categorized as a CLABSI or what's called a central line associated bloodstream infection. The definition of a CLABSI for reporting purposes is simply a positive culture in a patient with a central venous catheter in place for more than 48 hours without another definite source, right? So there's some frustration around how these are defined because that definition lacks a lot of specificity 
and it tends to overestimate the incidence of CLABSIs, and hospitals get financially penalized um, for these data. So people like me, in my role, are constantly trying to remind staff to only perform these cultures when it's appropriate, and always try to link your culture to a suspected source, like pneumonia, or urinary tract infection, or an abdominal abscess, or whatever that might be. Because if you can link that bug to another source, then it won't be defined as a primary bloodstream infection. So that, that makes sense. So in this patient, staph epi, it fits like the definition, but clinically wouldn't be it. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So there is often a difference between how you would clinically define an infection and how the National Healthcare Safety Network or the NHSN would define an infection from a surveillance perspective. And then hypothetically, let's this patient had a blood culture that had enterococcus. They later found abdominal abscess that had the same thing. That won't be a collapse because there's a source, correct? Correct. You, that would be a secondary bloodstream infection, and the primary source would be from you know the abdominal abscess or or whatever that might be. Continue with the case. The team listened to your advice about being probably a colonization. Patient remained stable. Uh, they were able to remove the line because they were no longer vasopressors. But the ICU resident wanted to ask. What is a good recommendation for when lines should be removed? Would I know this gets brought up on rounds a lot and talking to the IC team. What is kind of your recommendations on how to answer these type of questions? Yeah, so when, I, when I, we do rounds in the ICU or, or on any unit for that matter, I, I love that this sort of gets baked into the process, right? We need to be talking about the presence of, of these lines and the indications for these lines and thinking about getting these lines out or de-escalating them every single day, right? That should be part of our, uh, some automaticity to our process. Generally speaking, we don't advise removing or replacing central lines just for the sake of it. If you have a perfectly good central line and it's been in for several days, but the patient is stable and the line is not clinically infected, there's probably no need to change it, right? As long as you're using it for some purpose. We have lots and lots of examples of patients on long-term antibiotics with PICC lines for many weeks, or people who are on home TPN for months with central lines, and those lines often don't get infected as long as they're properly cared for. However, we should be looking at these lines in our patients every single day, asking ourselves why they're in place, whether it's appropriate for the patient. If it's not necessary, then we should be taking it out. We should be de-escalating it to a peripheral IV or a midline catheter. Lines should not be staying in place purely for the convenience of the patient or the caregiver, right? And that's a, that, that's oftentimes a reason why we leave these lines in for too long. It's, you know, they become sort of a crutch. Uh, I would also add here that we should avoid doing guide wire replacements. Uh, for central lines, unless you're doing it purely for a malfunctioning line. You put a central line in and it's not working and you suspect that the catheter may be just simply malfunctioning, it's probably okay to do a guide wire exchange. If you suspect infection, get the line out and try to find a new site. Do, don't do a guide wire exchange in that situation. And then I know the other kind of question that always gets brought up with this is, either as an ID physician or even as an ICU team, 
what are ways we could try to limit collapses from happening? Yep. So this is this is hot stuff, right? I mean, I think every health healthcare system is should be talking about this, right? Because these this is publicly reported information. This affects um, you know the bottom line of the hospital. So a lot of places are are really bringing this discussion to the forefront. Um, I invite everyone who's listening to this to to check out the latest guidelines for preventing healthcare associated bloodstream infections that was just recently published in Itchy which is the Infection Control Hospital Epidemiology Journal in April of this year, 2022. The guideline is supported by the IDSA, um, SHEA, which is the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America, the AHA and the Joint Commission. And in that document, they discuss the strategies that hospitals should be doing to prevent CLABSIs, including all the things you would expect to find, making sure you have clear indications for when to insert a central line, using an insertion checklist under sterile conditions, um, preferential use of the subclavian site, which may sound a little bit new, right? Because typically we were using ultrasound guided jugular access. Now they're saying actually the subclavian site may be the preferred site in, in many situations. Using chlorhexidine containing dressings for central lines and other tips for sort of proper routine care and maintenance of central lines. Thank you. Coming back to the patient, uh, we're able to be extubated, no longer needing pressors, no new lines, um, and went to the PCU to finish their care. Perfect. Great. Yeah. And I think it's really helpful for everyone to, to really just say again, the difference of thinking about Clabsy in the sense of the hospital and reporting versus what we see clinically. I think that was really important. I don't know that I really had a great understanding of that till I was a fellow. So I appreciate that you covered that today. Of course. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. That was our first segment. I can't wait for you to hear the rest of the series. So stay tuned for next Monday when we get to urinary tract infections. As always, you can check out the website, febrilepodcast.com, to find the consult notes, which are written compliments of the show with links to references, our library of ID infographics, and a link to our merch store. Please reach out if you have any suggestions or want to be more involved with Febrile. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you next week.